On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about deep fakes, which some of you know exactly what that means. Others of you have no clue, but you should, because here's the thing. It is a bit of software that allows for people to, well, completely trick you in ways that could be highly entertaining or, and here's the crucial part and here's the difficult part, in ways that become very disconcerting, especially if we're talking about politics or crime or something like that. That old line, believe what you see, mm, this throws some shade on that and some doubt on that. We're going to be chatting about the Ticats. They play their Labor Day game, of course, coming up this Monday. Rick Zamperin joins me. Should the CFL do something like baseball did with its players weekend? Lighten up a little bit? We'll talk about that. And there is news about Hamilton's arena situation. There is a report that will be presented Wednesday at the General Issues Committee meeting with City Hall that proposes that First Ontario Centre should be knocked down and a new 10,000-seat arena should be built somewhere in the downtown. Uh, We talked to the head of economic development, but we also talked to Michael Andlauer, owner of the Bulldogs, who has an idea as well. He wants to build a new arena up at Lime Ridge Mall. All that is coming up. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Visuals and radio don't really go together all that well. No matter how well I flail my arms and make faces, it still doesn't quite come across. But here's the thing. I watched a video the other day of Bill Hader. You would recognize him even if the name doesn't ring any bells. He was on Saturday Night Live. He's a really funny guy. And he made this really hilarious... He was doing a video. He was on a couch on some talk show and he was doing a hilarious impression of Tom Cruise. And it was very, very good. But here is where things got really weird as you were watching this, because I didn't realize what this video was that I was going to be watching when I started. I was just told, hey, watch this. And as he was doing it, I started realizing, you know, he's doing it so well that he's beginning to make me think he looks like Tom Cruise. But he wasn't making me think it. Technology, there was an, an algorithm, a piece of technology, a software that was literally changing his face subtly smoothly from Bill Hader into Tom Cruise. As he was doing it, it was Tom Cruise's face on his body. It was absolutely, thoroughly convincing. If you just tuned into the part where Tom Cruise's face was there, you would not have ever known it was not Tom Cruise talking on that couch, that it was Bill Hader. It's called deep fake technology. And again, while it's kind of fun to watch and it was kind of entertaining in a creepy kind of way, you can't help but wonder... What kind of chaos this could cause in a society where we're now relying so much on YouTube clips and video clips and all kinds of other things. I want to bring in an expert who's on this, who has written about this before, who's talked about this before, because when you watch this stuff, you realize where technology has reached. You realize where we have got with technology that you can now create a video that is absolutely, unquestionably so convincing that you are... Sure, the person you are watching is the person you're watching, but it isn't the person you're watching, if you catch my drift. And it doesn't take a very wild imagination. It doesn't take a very vigorous imagination to realize how this could end up being misused, how this could end up becoming a weapon in politics, in court, and something like that. Christina Libby is a professor at New York University. Uh, She's also executive vice president of future science and research at Hypergiant. And she is host of The Threat Matrix, which is a great name for what we're talking about. Uh, Christina, thanks for doing this today. 
Of course, it's my pleasure. Hi. Just as a little bit of background, before we jump into the potential pitfalls or problems with this, this is a new thing for a lot of people, this deep fake idea. Are you, can you explain how it works or is it just way too deep for us to even bother trying to dive into that? Um, it's not way too deep, but I think the way you should think about it is essentially a deep fake is any time a piece of video is created that is attempting to manipulate the the watcher, right? So it happens because of, um, it happens through a kind of highly technical mathematical software that manipulates images, um, which is sort of the base level that we as kind of regular people need to be aware of. Um, the the science behind it is actually um, is only it's less let's see it's about seven or eight years old and it's essentially um, an algorithm so uh, just really complicated math that manipulates um, specific images pixels and images um, and it teaches itself how to do that um, and then that's the the content that we're consuming is is manipulated media essentially. Do we know what the origin of this was? Like we like to believe, I think most of us like to believe that any new technology at its core was done with some positive or helpful purpose behind it. Do we know what the origin of this was or what the thought was behind this when they first started making it? Yeah, so it was actually or um, originated by a student um, and I don't think anyone was thinking it would be as malicious as it is. I think with all technology, right, when it's created, it's created because the technology is cool, right? The idea that we could mash up and manipulate videos um, is is on a base level interesting, Mm. right? Like, you know, the the Bill Hader video that you talked about, there's nothing particularly malicious about that video at all, right? And and it's kind of funny and there's a, a lot of shock to it in a way that's, you're like, oh, wow, you got me. Um, and so it, it wasn't necessarily in any means. I, I would say it's, it was not um, originated to be malicious. Um, I think the big concern that we have now is the way that this technology could be used um, in a way that is malicious or conniving or um, potentially undermining to sort of larger political and social structures. So. Christina, let's say we, we've got the funny part about this. We've got the fun part. We understand how this could be used for entertainment purposes and the rest. And, and I mean, heaven knows Hollywood has done similar things forever with their CGI and everything else. But we do know there have been stories already that we're hearing from either celebrities or other people as a first level problem with this, that sex tapes are now being made with people's faces being put on other bodies that is not theirs and people are now thinking they're watching someone who they're not really watching. That already sounds like a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. Um, As we often see with technology adoption, right, porn is one of the first industries that jumps on sort of new technology for new experiences. And and yeah, it is a problem there. Um, I think where we actually start to see a bigger problem is when we start to think about things like politics, right? Absolutely. you know, video is one of those mediums that you feel you can trust, right? Like, I saw it on TV, so it must be real, right? Especially when we're talking about things like the news or we're talking about video clips of people who are um, as our news figures. There was an incident with Nancy Pelosi where there was um, the video was augmented to make it look like she was slurring. And President Trump here in the U.S., 
he retweeted that video, right? Um, it then appeared on all of the different social networks who then had to go and take it down because it was ultimately proven to be a manipulated video. But it had already done a significant amount of damage, and there are people who don't know that that video was taken down. That is one thing, but, but think about something broader. Think about an instance where um, video is manipulated to make it look like a certain uh, foreign leader was at a certain meeting or said something that they didn't say, and then that actually could instigate um, warlike action, sure. sort of other more aggressive response. That's what we really need to be afraid of, particularly in the lead up to the Canadian or the U.S. elections, is we have to start asking ourselves how much of this video content can we trust and making sure that it's from reputable sources, that it isn't um, in any way tampered with. And that requires a level of savviness on behalf of the general public that requires them to be educated and aware of deep fakes. And the problem is that this video is so um, convincing, can be so expertly done that it's very, very difficult for for anyone to ask or anyone to sort of tell what is or isn't right. And then you have this much bigger problem of if you can't trust video and you can't trust the news, then you stop trusting all of those sources. Um, and then we're really in a, in a problematic position. Well, I mean, you bring up a, a tremendous point, and that is, again, we can have politicians who could get in trouble. You could have someone, a politician, you could now have a video of them standing up and saying, I hate whatever people group, and it looks like they really said it. And you're right, by the time that gets cleared up, they're already probably destroyed, even if it is eventually found to not be true. But beyond that, the point that you really make that I just find terrifying is, let's say the president, whoever the president is, we now have a deep fake with him or her saying, you know, we've learned that Russia is about to launch military strikes against us and we have fired nuclear weapons. I mean, you know, I mean, by the time someone figures out what's true and what's not, who down the road, who knows what that leads to? Right. The terror of that is um, highly alarming. And, and one of the things I think that we need to be really aware of that a lot of people aren't is that... Right now, there are 30 countries actively engaged in cyber warfare at any time, right? Um, there was just a great piece um, in the New York Times over the weekend about the fact that the U.S. has atta- attacked Iran um, and that, you know, it is part of this, what we call kind of a gray war, right? It's not hot. It's not really known in the news. But there's a lot of poking and prodding on either side um, using our cyber capabilities, if you think about that level of war and then layered on top of it is really this propaganda war that we see happening. Um, and we saw it a lot by Russia in the U.S. elections. We saw, also saw Russia um, meddling in the European elections. Um, and, and it's quite easy to use a piece of corrupted video, so a deep fake, to spread a propaganda war that could then result in cyber attacks maybe happening because of people misunderstanding pieces of data, right? And and we talk about something like a nuclear attack. That has a lot of layers to it before. I mean, there is the propaganda part of it, but then there's also, you know, an actual sort of military assault goes through a bunch of different levels. But a cyber attack doesn't necessarily go through the same levels of, of government um, triage and review and is often done a lot faster. Um, and so that whole muddied ecosystem of cyber war plus propaganda war plus deep fakes means that information is being shared very, very quickly. It's very hard to tell what 
is and isn't correct. And we're in a, a constant sort of gray conflict zone where that information can heat up really, really quickly. So you have to start to ask, what are other nations doing? How might they be abusing this technology? Um, and there's a lot of work in Russia right now being done with deepfake technology, particularly um, there now exists the ability um, in a, a few different research institutions and private enterprises to be able to make a deep fake off um, off single images. Yeah, it's and it's so, it's terrifying, and and we got to run, unfortunately. But the other, I mean, that's on a, a big scale, and that's terrifying. I mean, I can even look at something in a court case now. If you're up on charges for something, and there's video of you doing something. I mean, even that close that that where it could really hit home for somebody. I mean, it is it is a it's something to keep an eye on. As I say, it can be fun, but I'm looking at this going, man. At some point, I, I would expect uh, Christina, we are going to be talking about this as having had a real impact somewhere. Hopefully, not significant, but I'm I'm not too positive on that. Uh, Christina Libby, professor at New York University, look up her podcast, Threat Matrix. Really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Of course, thank you so much. Have a great night. Again, hopefully that doesn't uh, doesn't affect you in any way ever. But you know, technology d- tends to run wild, doesn't it? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know what Monday is, right? I mean, you know what this weekend is? Labor Day weekend, long weekend. The beauty of the long weekend. But Monday brings us Labor Day, and Labor Day brings us the Labor Day Classic. Does it every year, except for a few years ago when they decided to. Give us the not Toronto-Hamilton game. I think it was Toronto-Montreal that year, and everyone went, But now it's back. Toronto-Hamilton is back. The tradition is back. And you know what else is a tradition? The fifth quarter after the games here on 900 CHML, where you call in, sometimes in a drunk-infused rage. I don't expect that'll be the case on Monday. I think this is going to be a pretty happy Monday based on the way these two teams are going. But the other tradition is that the guy who was on the other end of the phone during that fifth quarter drunken infused rage is Rick Zamperin of 900 CHML who joins us now. Rick, how are you? Scott, good. How are you? I am good. Are you preparing for dealing with the drunken infused rage? Well, it's uh, it's going to be a little bit different this Labor Day because uh, it's a 1 p.m. kickoff. Thank goodness. Because... And, well, yeah, thank goodness for that. And I'm sure Hamilton police are happy with that as well. Uh, but because of that, and because our current format on the radio station in which we present the news and sports and all important weather and traffic on the nines, especially for those people coming back from the cottage or getting ready for school the next day, is that the fifth quarter on Monday from 4 to 5 is going to be on CHML's Facebook page only. It's not going to be on the radio. So you can call into the radio station and you can be inebriated. I just won't be on the other end of the line. Well, okay. Well, there's that. So I'm glad we cleared that up, first of all. So, uh, hey, let's um, let's talk about this game for a second, because I also don't think people are going to be calling in in an inebriated rage on Monday regardless, because yeah, that usually happens when the Ticats lose, and I simply cannot possibly fathom, after a 50-point win or whatever it was over Toronto earlier in the year, I can't fathom that there's any way Hamilton loses this game. Well... Uh, you know, stranger things have happened before, but yeah, I mean, all odds are against the Argonauts who come in uh, with one of the worst records in the league, the Ticats with one of the best records in the league. Uh, they're in Hamilton. Toronto has not played particularly well in Hamilton over the years, especially at Tim Hortons Field, and especially on Labor Day. You know, the fact of the matter is that the Ticats 
have dominated the Argos in Labor Day in terms of the win-loss column. Uh, I don't have the stats in front of me, but it, it is it is a, almost three to one, I think, in terms of wins and losses. And I know that's the past, but there's something about Labor Day, the tradition, um, you know, the, the smell in the stadium, the feeling you get, so certainly as a fan, of course, I'm sure the players feel that as well, is that this is, regardless of the records of either team, this is one of the biggest games of the season because it's us versus them. Okay. And that said, and all of what you just said is true, but if I said to you, Rick Zamperin, you must wager every dime you own on this game, <laughs> there is not a chance you're going to hesitate for one second to put it on Hamilton this year. Every day and twice on Sunday, or in this case Monday, yeah. I would bet Hamilton to win this football game. I mean, Toronto stinks. Yeah, I mean, well, that's not that's uh, not a surprise. I mean, they stunk uh, last year and you know the year before that, and they've been in the doldrums for a few seasons. They've had coaching changes, players coming in and out, guys getting injured, uh, ownership uh, you know in flux, uh, ticket sales not going the way they wanted to, moving to a new facility, and they've had a lot of things not go their way over the past few seasons, including a lot of games not going their way, but you know, the fact of the matter is this Hamilton Ticats team is much deeper than they are, uh, not only in the front office, but on the field especially, and this is this should really be a lopsided game, no different than what we saw earlier in the season uh, when the Ticats beat Toronto 64-14. to That was with Jeremiah Masoli, so it might be a little bit closer uh, on Monday. That said, now... And again, I think most people expect Hamilton to win. And I'm wondering if there's a connection between that and the fact that it was a couple days ago we got an email saying that the seats at the stadium had all been sold out already, which was earlier, I think, than it's been for a little while now. It's always, if not a sellout, then close to it, but not always that early. Are people? Do you think people are going to the game because they want to see... I mean, they always want to see Hamilton win, but often if it's going to be questionable, I don't know. It seems to me this is a guaranteed win day, and the seats sold out early. It's like, yeah, you know what? We can go and be guaranteed to have a good time this year. I, I think they're going to have a good time regardless. Obviously, it's always, <laughs> a, cherry, it's always a cherry on the top of the Ticats win, but I think the other element to this is the 1 p.m. start. You know, that's, that's 6.30 start time. You know, for TV purposes, you know, that's prime time, but... You know, if you have a kid that's going to school the next day or you're preparing as a parent for your kid to go to school the next day and you're going to change your day around because all summer long you've been doing something different, uh, I think that it has an impact on a lot of people who think about whether or not they should buy tickets. And I certainly uh, wholeheartedly, because I've seen it myself, uh, put a lot of pause into people at halftime to say, okay, do we stay for another two quarters and then battle traffic? Or do we leave at halftime because we can get home early, put the kids to bed, yada, yada, yada. So I think that 1 p.m. start time has gone a long way to this earlier-than-normal sell-in. Wasn't that also a 6.30 or 6 o'clock start a couple years ago when they had the endless rain delay, too, or thunder-lightning delay? Yes, yeah. In yeah. the fifth quarter, I think it was, I don't know, like a midnight start time. It was the seventh quarter. It was, yeah, by that time. It was, and I'm sure, uh, you know, there weren't many people left in the stands, and those that were were really having a good time. But, uh, yeah, starting at 1 o'clock, to me, I'm, I'm all in favor of that. That's that's the way it should be. One more thing about the 1 o'clock start, Rick. I think it was probably, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years ago, there was a guy who ran on the field at Old Iverwind Stadium. Uh, I'm sure that he was warming up to be one of your drunken callers on the fifth quarter. Um, and he scampered up to the goalpost, shimmied up the goalpost, and hung from the top just by the flag. 
And I remember at that time, the Ticat said, that's the last time we're doing a 4 o'clock start. We want to get earlier so guys don't have all day to tailgate and get loaded. Uh, wise move to go to 1 o'clock, I would say. You know what? When that, uh, I remember calling that game on CHML, and when that happened, I didn't actually see the guy climb up the pole. I just saw him when he got towards the top. So I was calling the game, and all of a sudden there was a stoppage in play, and there was a, com- a huge commotion. And I'm looking at color analyst John Salavanis and, and thinking, what in the world is going on? Like, is there a streaker on the field? Like, something's happening because I know security is you know, doing their thing. They're running out of the field, they're running towards the goalpost, and lo and behold, I look up, and all of a sudden, there he is. And I, I mean, to be shocked beyond belief is, is probably an understatement, but uh, yeah, one of the highlights slash lowlights of the past recent Labor Days. want to ask you something else about the CFL. This was something from baseball, and, and you know, I, I, I'm halfway loving the idea and halfway not, but last weekend in Major League Baseball was Players Weekend, and people probably tuned into a game and saw the the home team was wearing solidly all-white uniforms. And when I say all-white, I mean all-white. The numbers, the letters, the logos, everything was white. And the visiting team was wearing all-black uniforms. And on the back of the shirts, the players were able to pick whatever nickname they wanted. Is this a good idea for some league like the CFL that, you know, it's not the NFL. It's, 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 you're supposed to have a little more fun, I think, with the CFL. Is this a good idea for something for them to look at adopting? You know, number one, I'm kind of surprised because Major League Baseball has done this for, I think this is the third or fourth year now, and I'm kind of surprised that the other leagues have not done it yet, Uh, especially if you're, you know, the NHL in markets like, you know, the Floridas of the world and, you know, Arizona. Uh, Certainly the NFL could could do that. Uh, The NBA has kind of done that. Uh, with, uh, you know, their, their uh, I can't remember what they're calling their special uniforms, but they've kind of gone through that, you know, let's give the players a little bit of leeway in how they want to, you know, dress with certain sneakers and stuff like that. So I, I think it would be a great idea for the CFL to, to pick this thing up because it brings a little bit more attention to the league or a particular team or a particular, uh, you know, player's nickname. It, it only draws some attention. Now, you know, purists will think, you know, they're, they're just messing with, you know, uniforms and it should be, uh, you know, the standard, but I mean, we've, over the last number of decades, have seen, you know, special jerseys, alternate uniforms, so I think that kind of purity of the game has gone by the wayside, so I think it's just about having fun, you know, the, the MLB players really have a big input into this weekend because they, uh, you know, they play with special bats or gloves, uh, you know, their, their um, uh, rules around social media are relaxed before the game. They can, you know, be on their phones filming things, you know, posting on Instagram up until the national anthem. So I think, la- or, you know, relaxing the rules, having a little fun is, is not a bad thing at all. I'd be up for it to see the other leagues do that. And it's not like, you know, the baseball relaxing their rules on this or doing something against tradition is new. I mean, I'm thinking back to, what was it, 1970s when the Chicago White Sox wore short pants and big collars? <laughs> Yeah, you know, like it, it, the the Pittsburgh Pirates once upon a time with their bucket hats, you know, with the right. yeah. Kent Tacolvi hats and all that. I mean, it's it's not like it hasn't been done before. It's just a different thing. And here's the thing that shocks me: I'm amazed that baseball, which I think is probably the most staid and set in its ways of all the sports, is the one that would do this. Because this is this is really something that I think probably got its start in the XFL with the nicknames on the back. Right. And baseball is the last sport that I would have picked to have been the first one to dive into that pool. Yeah, I would, I would have put money on that, too. That that would have been the last league, I would have thought, because, you know, here's these stuffy owners in these big major league ballparks that have done it a certain way for eons. 
Uh, I would have picked them to be the last to to uh, make this conversion, but I think the fans have a fun you know fun time around with it. I think in the future though, uh, and I know this was the first time that they did this this year in terms of their monochrome uh, uniforms. I think in the future they'll have to they should go back to a little more color or a lot more color in their uniforms because it was just too pardon the pun black and white. Well, I mean, when I first turned on my TV, and I mean, I have a reasonably new television set. I mean, a few years old. I thought something was wrong. <laughs> I thought the white balance or something. And I mean, the guy, I can't remember who was up to bat at the moment. It was a Blue Jay, and he was glowing. And I, I actually, I, yeah. I, I must admit, I liked the white helmets, the all-white helmets, but the rest of it was a lot of white. It was a lot of white. And it's interesting, too, because there was one team, for those who haven't seen it, there was one team that was dressed all in black. Uh, and there was one team that was dressed all in white. But the white team, when they were pitching, the pitcher had to wear a black cap because, well, it's against the rules to wear a white cap because oh, okay. it kind of shields the ball. So uh, that was uh, one of the interesting spins about this, this player's weekend. I also, you know, the, the difference is in baseball, the one advantage you have with an all-white uniform, because I would think you've been a play-by-play guy. In football, a uniform like that would be an absolute nightmare. Baseball, you know where guys are supposed to be. The right fielder is in right field, so you can figure out who that is. Football, good luck. Good luck if you're calling that game for anybody. Yeah, I remember calling one of the games at the BC Lions with their uh, Slate. gunmetal black Love uh, those. uniforms. Oh, they were horrendous to call. You couldn't <laughs> see anything. You would, you would basically call the play without announcing anybody's name because you had no idea who it was unless you memorized their body type or they had you know dreadlocks or whatever the case was. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you would call the play and then look up at the video board and say, oh, that was number such and such. Yeah, it was a run through the line by the guy. The guy is through. <laughs> yeah, here's a handoff tackle, and that was... <laughs> a guy. That was a, yeah. a lion made the tackle. Listen, I, I would love for the CFL to do this. I, here's the thing. I worry sometimes the CFL at moments begins to take itself a little too seriously and has to remember that it's not the NFL, and there's a charm in not being the NFL. And this kind of thing, I, I'd be all over this for them to do this one. Anyway, we got to let you go. You're driving somewhere. We appreciate your time. Rick Zamperin from 900CHML. You will catch him on the fifth quarter, but not on here, on 900CHML's Facebook page. Rick, thanks for doing this. You got it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900CHML. There is a, a meeting that's going to be held. The General Issues Committee is going to be meeting for the city. It's a city council subcommittee on Wednesday. And when they sit down to meet... One of the things that's going to be on the table, is, well, there's two things that are going to be on the table. We're going to talk about both. One of them is a report from Ernst & Young that they commissioned to look at what they should do with First Ontario Centre. We'll get to what they should do in a moment, but I already told you. Knock it down, the report says, and build a new smaller arena. Connected with that, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs has for years now been pushing for this exact kind of thing. He also, in that meeting, will have a document coming up in front of council, in front of the committee, which says that he is ready and prepared. It's a proposal in which it'll say that he's ready and prepared to start moving on a an arena up in the Lime Ridge Mall area. I want to bring in the owner of the team, Michael Landlauer, who joins us now. Michael, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, this is not new. I think you and I have probably talked about this two or three or four times over the years. You've been pushing for a new arena in this city for, it's got to be four years now. It's about right. Uh, ever since I bought the Belleville Bulls and uh, moved them to Hamilton, uh, there were discussions uh, that started then. Have, in your mind, have these discussions, I mean, there's clearly documents now and there's reports and everything else, but in your mind, ha- has the discussions gone anywhere? 
Uh, they, they've gone. I mean, they, they, we've had lots of discussions of, uh, you know, and started off with uh, uh, a breakfast meeting at the West Town and uh, uh, with uh, Chris Murray, the city manager, talking about uh, about opportunities uh, then. Um, they were talked again uh, uh, with other uh, city officials, uh, including the mayor, over the over over the last little while, and and uh, um, and yeah, it's taken this long to get there. So, the report now that that we're going to talk about in a little bit with Glenn Norton with uh, from Economic Development says this report is from Ernst and Young. It says the the city should, in its opinion, knock down First Ontario Centre, build a smaller 10,000-seat arena. That's more appropriate for the city, and a new arena is going to save the city money in the long run. However, the caveat to this thing, the catch to this thing, is that their report is designed or is specifically targeted to the downtown area. Your proposal, as I understand it, would ideally be for the Lime Ridge Mall area. How do you cross that bridge? How do you bridge that gap if you're going to, to make this thing work somehow? You could buy by going via the link, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think it, uh, I, first of all, I, I just—it's a shame that the, the uh, that the uh, the offer comes out at the same time as the uh, as the um, as this report uh, because it's been it's been ongoing. Like I said, four years. So the report was, I think, was mandated earlier this year. Uh, I think in January, February this year. So uh, we, I had. I've had discussions with the mayor, like I said, other city officials, city planners, et cetera, about, about this. Uh, um, I brought in Cadillac Fairview uh, in on the meetings, uh, looked at opportunities, and um, you know, it just so happened that the that the uh, you know, that the, the uh, this this offer, uh, even though the report says it's unsolicited, uh, it's definitely not. Uh, unexpected uh, because the mayor, you know, basically said, "Hey, put something forward uh, and um, and go from there." So I, I don't. I think you know, at the end of the day, I, I didn't. I never wanted to wait four years, uh, but there's you know circumstances that that dictated they were going to take longer, and and that's uh, that was outside of my my control. Uh, but uh, now where we are, where we are, uh, it, what it does, it gives it gives Hamiltonians an option. Uh, you know, I've, I've been on the air to to um, I've been on the air to uh, uh, you know to to say I'm, I'm pretty agnostic. I, I care what's what's in the best interest of Hamiltonians and taxpayers and and uh, hockey fans, entertainment fans, and and uh, you know uh, trying to work with the city to make uh, to make something uh, something special. Now, the city, certain people in the city, and certainly as I say, this report by Ernst and Young, they were specifically tasked with only looking at a downtown new arena. How do you make the case? Because when this comes up in front of them and there are people whose heels are absolutely dug in that this is downtown or bust, there is no other option. How do you make the case that they should change their mind and consider Lime Ridge as an area to do this as opposed to the downtown? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand where, where, where people are coming from, uh, those who are opposed to it. Uh, and I don't know if the people are opposed to it or not. I, I, to me, it's... Uh, Hamilton is not just downtown. Hamilton is, you know, it's it's Flamborough. It's, uh, it's it's up on the mountain. It's uh, it's it stretched quite a bit. That's only okay, you know. So to me, it's not. Uh, to me, it was it was uh, you know, it's what's in the, like I said, it's what's in the best interest. Um, you know, if you can have it downtown, I think one of the things 
I know I discussed it with young uh, uh, folks was was you know you have to be cognizant that that it becomes an entertainment thing. It's not just an arena that you just turn around and build. It has to make it, it has to be a destination. It has to be a place where people feel safe, comfortable, uh, and, um, and do more than just go to a concert or or, or a hockey game and um, and the like. So to me, uh, you know, one of the options was working with the largest taxpayer in the city, being Cadillac Fairview and the the uh, the owner of the Lime Ridge Mall and and. Uh, which is, which has been a destination, and and, uh, and create uh, you know an environment that might be uh, that we could actually action quickly, uh, you know, because I think at the end of the day, uh, as we all know, when we deal with politicians, they don't move quite as quickly as as as, as we one might like. Uh, talk about the LRT or anything of that nature, but at the end of the day, this was just an uh, this is an option. And, and uh, uh, just to be clear, so people know, Cadillac Fairview, who's in this proposal with you, uh, they are the ones who own Lime Ridge Mall, so they can pretty much do to the mall whatever they want to do and make that happen very quickly and put their own money into their property. And they and and yes, uh, and then what they do, they do they do exceptionally well too, from the from a building development standpoint. If you look at uh, the malls around the country, uh, uh, actually around the world, uh, I know I've. I've I'm in Montreal with with uh, directly with the uh, with uh, condos being built uh, around the Bell Center and and uh, uh, you know successfully done and and uh, uh, where it's you know created a win-win-win situation. So um, yeah, that's that's the case in this case. So y- your preference, and I think it's very clear, your preference is the Lime Ridge Mall spot. Could you be convinced if the city were to say, look, we've we've got this downtown plan and we think this works best, can you be convinced to be involved in an arena build that would be not at Lime Ridge but downtown? I, I, I'm, of course I could be convinced. It has to, like I said, it has to be a win-win-win. It has to be, it has to make sense for for everybody uh, and taxpayers uh, just as importantly. Uh, you know, the uh, facility has has you know, uh, and I forget what the report said, but I think it's close to forty million dollars in, in maintenance capital expenditures required uh, for the next four years, and um, five years I think it is. And now we're already spending money, you know, for millions of dollars to fix, fix escalators and elevators, and, and uh, uh, you know that to me could have been avoided had we started earlier. So for me, it's more of a timing thing than anything else. Scott and uh, meaning what uh, just to get going on it meaning let's get going <laughs> you know that's why this, this this is an opportunity to get going immediately uh, and the, the quicker we get going the, the quicker the then the less we have to spend uh, on a on a tired building which hasn't had gotten the attention it's it's you know it's, it's needed in terms of upkeep uh, over the years and uh, not taking anything away I know it's it's you know, uh, you know it costs money costs taxpayers and um, but to me, it's we can do something special. By the way, a smaller arena, 10,000 seats, is not is not a small arena. It's uh, it's almost twice as big as what the Meridian Center in St. Catharines is. Um, it, it would be a, a pretty special uh, special arena. Well, and you know, we only have a minute or two left here, but I mean that that's interesting because uh, it is bigger than a lot of the ones around. But it would be right in line with, say, London's Budweiser Gardens, and that one is often seen as the 
the gold standard around here. I mean, I, the, the Bell Centre in Montreal is very, very busy, and you know that well. You're a part owner of the Canadians, but the Budweiser Gardens is either number two or number three every year on the list of busiest arenas. Does that size work for a city this size? Oh, absolutely. I think it does. Uh, I think anything between 1,000 and 10,000 seats would, would, work, uh, would work great. Uh, you know, you got, um, I, I was just at Memorial Cup, uh, uh, I guess a couple months ago in Halifax and they have a similar size building and, and it's, it's, uh, it, it was electric there, uh, with a convention center there and, and, uh, uh, it's, it, it was really, um, uh, so I think it, it would work, work nicely. Um, but as for London, yeah, I mean, if you look if you look at those models, uh, they've worked. They've worked well, and, and I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's something that I would uh, I would uh, embrace. It is uh, it is going to come up Wednesday at the GIC meeting. It'll be really interesting to see, um, and I'm sure you're going to be interested as well to see what council does. This is only a first step of what council does with your proposal, because uh, as I say, there are some who are adamant that they want to consider all things, and some that say no, it has to be downtown. And I guess we're going to find out. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm like I said, I'm I'm I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic to uh, uh, you know as long as it's in the best interest for uh, for Hamiltonians and the fans of, of hockey, fans of of, enter, of of entertainment. I think we're uh, uh, we can you know we can find the right ground, but I think from a timing standpoint, I think that's that's got under understood too. That is Michael Andlauer, owner of the Bulldogs. Thanks for the time. Always appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, so there, so you've got the owner of the team that would like to put an arena ideally connected to Lime Ridge Mall, which by the way, he mentioned something in his discussion there that I think I should point out because it often flies under the radar. People don't know this. And I only learned this recently and I was very stunned by this. I, I assume that's like Stelco or DeFasco or whatever. They were the biggest taxpayers in the city. Lime Ridge Mall apparently is the number one tax generating business entity in this city. We have more taxes being paid by Limeridge than any other company or business in the city. I was shocked by that. Did not know that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Glenn Dort, Director of Economic Development in the city. Uh, as I said, there was, in addition to Michael Ann Lauer's proposal that's going before the GIC, there is also a report from Ernst & Young that is now done that talks about what we should be doing with the current arena and going forward. Uh, Glenn, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. So it, the the short version of this, because it is a long, dense report. I talked to you earlier today, and I think you said you were on your fifth read through it. I didn't get yeah. through it quite five times today, but my eyes are still almost bleeding. Um, the short version is they're suggesting the best possible option among a number of them, correct me if I'm wrong, is build a new 10,000-seat arena in the city and then start moving other entertainment pieces around in the downtown to make this work. Yes, I mean... Don't forget, the, the Ernst & Young report wasn't just to talk about the uh, First Ontario Centre. It wasn't just about the arena. It was about all of the city's entertainment-related assets downtown. So, um, you know, one of the clearest recommendations was that the First Ontario Centre, as an arena and as a multi-use um, entertainment venue, is mismatched to the market. It's too big. It uh, is filled on a very rare occasion for large shows, and it's just too big for the hockey teams that are playing there in terms of a good fan experience. So, uh, and and it's getting old and uh, needing some extensive repairs. So, that is the uh, the first recommendation 
out of the report that a new 10,000-seat facility be, be, be built, and that's kind of going to be uh, sufficient for hockey, but also, very importantly, uh, sufficient for good-sized shows on the entertainment side. Yeah, because one of the numbers that's jumped out at me off the pages today was that uh, in 2018, and 2018 was actually a very good year for First Ontario Centre as far as shows and attendance, that the average concert attendance was, I think, 9,140 people. So that you build a 10,000-seat arena, you're, you're fitting a good year right in for most of the shows. That's right. And so the, the best comparison, if, if people have traveled down to uh, London, Ontario, the centre they have there is, is 10,000 seats, managed by the same group, and it gets more events than we do. So it's turned out to be very successful. So we're saying that's a good model to, um, to follow after. And we think we can be equally as mo- or even more successful just because of our proximity to the uh, Toronto market, that we can bring in people to see shows um, from Toronto if the show isn't running in Toronto. One of the interesting things that was proposed is, um, and we've been down this road with Tim Hortons Field, Iverwind Stadium. We know how that went when we tried to build right on top of the old stadium. It took a year or more for construction where the team had to play out of the city. This one suggests we build a new state, a new arena, not on that site, somewhere else in close proximity in the downtown. Where is their land available to do that? Or would we have to be very creative to try and find enough space to build an arena like that? Yeah, and, and I'll have to sort of steer away from that topic, Scott. That's that's totally confidential. Okay, let me put it a different way. Is there land downtown somewhere that we could do it, or would we have to be buying somewhere and, and knocking down and rebuilding? So a combination of those. There definitely are sites within the downtown. Uh, let's leave it at that, and that's what the report looks at, and that was the direction of council is to look at downtown options. And, and one of the reasons for moving it is so that you can have it built well, the existing one is still in operation. And that way you don't lose what could essentially be two to three seasons uh, for the hockey team and for the uh, entertainment venue by having something torn down and then built up. So, and I think Ticat fans would love that you had said that. Wish you had said, wish you had been <laughs> the person in charge about four years ago or five years ago. What about yeah. what about the idea, Glenn? Now, and we just were talking to Michael Anlauer before you came on. Uh, he has this proposal that would put him at Lime Ridge Mall. This report specifically uh, asked Ernst & Young to look ex- exclusively at the downtown. What about that? Why exclusively at the downtown, and what does that mean for Michael Ann Lauer's proposal then? Yeah, so I'm not going to be able to give you a full answer on that. It was a council direction to staff um, that only the downtown be considered. Um, so, in, and even I can't talk about Mr. Ann Lauer's proposal okay. at all. That's fine if he wants to talk to you but he's asked us to uh, to not so um it will be um received on wednesday at gic and there will be some in-camera discussion about location but you know the general rationale of why you look at uh, downtowns as the place for these groupings or clusters of entertainment facilities is that there's the opportunity to feed other businesses that you can feed the hotels, for instance, uh, which are always clustered in the downtown. But you can feed the restaurants, which tends to be clustered downtown. So there's the follow-on effect and the economic spin-off um, from research going back over many different locations, different cities, different countries, suggests that downtown uh, generally is the better location. 
Now, let me play devil's advocate for one second, because once upon a time, and I honestly can't remember which counselor it was who used this phrase once, but pointed to the fact and said, look, we live in, we live in a city where there's an upper city and a lower city. It's a divided geographical city. And Lime Ridge Mall is the downtown of the mountain. Is, I mean, is, can a case be made to say when Lime Ridge is paying the amount of taxes that it is that is essential for city coffers, that putting it there, even though it's not technically the downtown, it's like putting it in a downtown? Or is that a ridiculous explanation I just gave you? <laughs> well, I'm not going to call anything ridiculous. Oh, you um, can go but, ahead. <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's pros and cons. Um, you know, I can't get into that. That's not my, my place. That's, that's where council will go. You know, it was very clear the direction that staff had and Ernst Young was given you're not to look at any place outside the downtown. So, uh, Last thing then before I let you go, and again, you, you may not be able to answer this, but I'm going to throw it anyway. How does that, when this thing comes up, and now something's going to be done, because in the report, one of the things that it points out is that in five years from now, even if we go with the, we're just going to fix first Ontario center and keep it going. I think the number was 42 point something million dollars. that's going to have to be spent. Some money is going to be spent in the next short term. Something is going to be done. How does staff direct council or help council to ensure that this does not turn into another LRT or another stadium debate that gets bogged down and gets caught in the mud forever? Is there anything staff can do to help direct that and make sure this doesn't become that? Well, uh, you know, we don't we don't direct council; they direct us. But I can tell you, I don't think anybody is looking for that. I, I think council is ready to to make some decisions. They do have three options, as laid out in the Ernst and Young report, as you saw. One is the status quo, which means just keep repairing what we've got. Um, the second one would be to do an upgrade to the existing uh, structures, keep it where it is. And the third one is the bigger one that says, okay, let's build the uh, new multi-use entertainment venue with an arena in it. And then when that's done, we take down First Ontario Centre, we put a convention centre there, and then we have this site left over from the current convention centre. That's the uh, the ultimate one, and that is the one that Ernst & Young have recommended. Glenn Norton, uh, Director of Economic Development in this city. I appreciate the time today. Thanks for taking a few minutes. Uh, you're welcome, Scott. You can read more about this. There's a story uh, in on the spec.com right now there'll be a story in the paper tomorrow it's a it's a really interesting situation that is here now and the reason is very obvious because the city as i said as we've just covered the city has directed Ernst and Young to do this study of a downtown site what can we do in a downtown site and the owner of the bulldogs his preference would not necessarily to be in a downtown site but he is stepping up saying i've got the money and i'm ready to go right now and I don't know that Michael Andlauer's preferences are going to sway city council one way or the other, but I also agree with what Glenn Norton just said. And I think that council, I, I believe and I hope that council, and I, I think this is the case, has learned some lessons from the LRT and from the stadium and does not want to get bogged down in another endless fight over something like this. It's a big deal. It's, I mean, it's, it's, tens of millions of dollars. It's not something you just sort of snap your fingers and say, ah, no problem, no big deal. This is an expensive proposition. You got to do this right. And it's got repercussions a lot of different places. I don't believe council wants to get bogged down in this. I like to believe that lessons have been learned from the last ones, but we'll see how this goes. 
We'll see how this goes. And and last point, which I mentioned a moment ago to Glenn, the report clearly outlines this report that's going to come in front of council GIC committee on Wednesday. The report clearly says that the option to do nothing is not an option at this point, which is why this has become a story. Sometime over the next five years, the report says the city, if it keeps First Ontario Centre and plans to keep it long term, it's going to have to spend $42.3 million just to keep things going, to maintain it, to fix it, to do the things it has to do. So we're in as a city for $42 million regardless. The question is, after that, and there's more expenses long term, that's not where it ends. After that, where does this thing go? I guarantee you're going to be hearing more discussion about this over the next weeks and months. Hopefully not years. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.